Hey, everybody, I'm Julia Furlan, and this is the news from BuzzFeed News. Today, we bring you a multi-year investigation into alleged abuse by the Catholic Church that you haven't heard before. Then we answer the question, what is a deep fake and why are they so terrifying? And finally, a look at the news from around the globe this week. There was a lot of it. Okay, let's do this. UN human rights investigators say they think the top generals in Myanmar should be tried for genocide. Damning allegations of abuse at an orphanage run by the Catholic Church in Burlington. New technology is making digital media manipulation easier than ever. This week, the Pennsylvania grand jury found that 300 priests abused 1,000 children over the past 70 years. And that report also made it clear that the church was covering up these crimes. But there's a new front in the Catholic abuse scandal, and it's one you probably haven't heard about yet. Reporter Christine Keneally spent four years reporting on instances of physical and sexual abuse at orphanages around the country, many of which were run by the Catholic Church. Eventually, she focused on one orphanage in Burlington, Vermont, St. Joseph's Catholic Orphanage where former residents filed lawsuits in the 1990s that documented decades of abuse and even alleged deaths at the hands of nuns. All I really want is an honest apology and for them to come face to face with me, tell me these things did happen, honestly tell me that they were sorry it happened and that would they please if at all possible, never let it happen to children again. Investigations editor Mark Schuess talks with Christine on The Lead today about this hidden chapter in American history and the impact it has today. Heads up, this story has some depictions of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse towards children. Christine, why don't you just start by telling us about this orphanage, St. Joseph's in Burlington, Vermont? Yeah, so St. Joseph's, it was actually founded in 1854, and it was run by an order of nuns known as the Sisters of Providence. And they had actually come down from Quebec. In fact, most of them were French-speaking. For many decades, a lot of the nuns at the orphanage were speaking French to these English-speaking kids. Um, so the orphanage closed around 1974, so it ran for, for more than a century, and for much of that time, although there was sort of decline in the last couple of decades, there were maybe 20 or 30 nuns present at the orphanage, and there were sometimes up to 350 children. And who were those children? Yeah, tell us about those children. These kids had come from, essentially from the surrounding area, from Burlington itself and from the countryside around Burlington. And even though St. Joseph's was, in fact, called an orphanage for most of its existence, most of these kids weren't orphans at all. You know, these kids had come from incredibly poor families. They also came from families, in many cases, where they weren't being looked after properly, where the parents were maybe alcoholic or addicted, where parents were just ill, where they couldn't look after their kids. Um, The father had died or the mother was ill. You know, in some cases, the state had taken the children away from their parents because they were being either abused or neglected at home, and then they put them in the orphanage. And then at the orphanage, many of them were abused again. That's right. That was just, that's just a truly horrible thing about this story. And the nature of abuse and the extent of the abuse is 
is honestly hard to take in. You know, kids were sexually abused, and not just by priests, you know, the story with which we're all now familiar, right? So not just priests, not just men, there were laymen at the orphanage uh, who sexually abused these kids, and um, many of the children told stories about being abused by nuns as well, by the women. Um, but there was not just the sexual abuse, there was emotional abuse, just incredible cruelty, the things that were said to these children that they've remembered their entire lives, um, really, just really awful shaming things, which was as terrible for many of these children as the other kinds of abuse. But then, of course, there was physical abuse as well. And that's that's really something that's been so invisible for so long, not just the sexual abuse, but the physical abuse. And the physical abuse, you know, was in many cases just a straightforward torture for these children. So, you know, kids were hung upside down out windows. They were hung upside down over stair rails. They were held underwater they were burned. One very common story was when kids wet their beds. You know, one of the reasons kids often wet their beds when they're asleep at night is because they're under terrible stress. So in orphanages all over the world, they would be forced to drape their wet sheets around themselves and parade through the dorm or up and down the hallway. Punishments were just extraordinarily humiliating and shaming. In the morning when we get up, she would have me sitting on the floor beside my bed and she would make all the other kids laugh at me and tell them what a bad girl I was during the night. A lot of people are still traumatized, not just because they wet their bed and they were punished, but because they were made to shame these other kids who'd wet their bed. Yeah. And even though we're talking about extreme physical abuse, being made to kneel or stand for hours, sometimes with their arms straight out or being outright hit or punched or or being made to eat their own vomit, that's not the worst. And there are stories of actual alleged murder. Talk to us about Sally Dale, the, the, the main person who we follow in this story. Yeah. So, well, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the stories of physical abuse were sort of so extreme. They were up to and including allegations of death. And there were quite a few of them that came out of St. Joseph's, but it's not uncommon uh, for many of these places to have those stories emerge. And Sally Dale, you know, who was just so critical to our story for a number of reasons. One, she was there almost as long as anyone had ever been at the orphanage. She was there for over 20 years, and she'd been there since she was two years old. What was incredible about Sally was that she was still somehow, somehow she had managed to retain her own self, and she had this core that you could see even in these videotaped depositions in the 1990s, decades after she was there. There was a stubbornness for Sally Dale. There was this quality of resilience and honesty um and she was she was a truth teller everything we could check out checked out she witnessed a number of events where she believed that a child had been murdered i saw somebody push a boy out the window when she was quite young sally um recalled being at the back of the orphanage she was being shown around the orphanage by a nun and i was looking up at the building and to tell you who the nun was, I can't say, but I knew it was a nun because she had to have it. Any kind of hit and 
well, I guess you'd call it, it was a bounce. And then he laid still. She was so uh, shocked and terrified and overwhelmed. It took her two days to ask what had happened to that boy. And the nun said to her, don't worry, he's gone home to his mother for good. Now, one of the things that we we do know is there are some places where, where just the stories of death cannot be denied because there are simply bodies that have been found in the an orphanage in Scotland, up to 400 bodies in unmarked graves at a, at a boys' school in Mariana, Florida, dozens of, of, of unmarked graves in, a, in an orphanage at the, uh, in the Blackfoot Nation in Montana. Let's just mm. step back for a moment. What was the American orphanage system in the 20th century? What are we talking about in terms of scale? That's what's so incredible about this story. The American orphanage system is almost entirely invisible, and yet it was huge. So we think that at least 5 million children passed through the orphanage system in the 20th century, that we know that there were many of those were at the start of the century, that the orphanage system was at its peak in around the 1930s, and there were at least 1,600 orphanages at that time. Many of them were run by religious institutions, and the Catholic Church was an absolutely huge player in that field. But when I think about that 5 million, I think about not just that 5 million, but the children of those 5 million who are in ways part of that system, and they don't even know it. I mean, I've spoken to many of them that kids whose parents were in the orphanage system, their lives are often indelibly shaped by their parents' experience. In some cases, it's just because their parents never really learned how to parent. Um, in many cases, it's because their parents are very powerfully traumatized by what happened to them. And um, nevertheless, they grew up and they had children of their own. They often didn't tell their kids they'd been in the orphanage system, but these kids were just deeply affected by it nonetheless. You know, in the last couple of decades, many other countries, Canada, the UK, Germany, Ireland, your country, Australia, have all had substantial official government inquiries into aspects of the orphanage system. And that, of course, was crucial for you because you had verified government inquiries that you could rely on for much of your research. But that has not happened in the United States. There has been no real reckoning with the orphanage system. Instead, in a very American way, what is left is for these individual former residents, or they're sometimes called survivors of the orphanage, to lodge a civil suit, something that is emotionally grueling, that is expensive, that can often be stymied by the statute of limitations. And that happened in the case of St. Joseph's. So why don't you just tell us about the attempt to use the civil lawsuit procedure in the United States to get some form of a reckoning? Yeah, I, you know, I thought about this so much. And the contrast that you just described is a really powerful one. So there have been all these government inquiries um, in other countries of the world. And what is really extraordinary about those inquiries is that they begin from a place of much greater acknowledgement and even compassion. 
for the victims. And yet, with their sort of compassion, they also have the power of subpoena in many cases. So they are able to compel these institutions to produce records. They are able to compel these representatives of institutions to turn up and to give statements. So that That's really incredible what that's produced elsewhere. For better or for worse, um, as you say, if these stories go anywhere in the United States, they've tended to end up in the court system with these civil cases. And, of course, the nature of these cases is that they're combative. So, you know, a lot of the former residents of St. Joseph's experienced the 1990s litigation as, as, as traumatizing all over again, as, as brutal and painful all over again. It was not... Um, it was not a healthy or helpful process for them. You know, I, I guess people might argue that the value is that they might get some kind of, um, I think, the payouts in cases like these when people win in America tend to be enormous, perhaps compared to compensation that might be gained through government inquiries elsewhere in the world. But uh, the cost the personal cost is extraordinary. And in fact, at the in the in the case of the settlements that were reached in St. Joseph's, it was it was a small amount. One person said ten thousand dollars, another person said not even enough to buy a used car. But just tell us the story of the litigation. It began with one person who who sought out a lawyer. I believe his name was Joseph Barkin. And let's talk about that moment when he walks into the lawyer's office. Because it's an extraordinary moment. So Joey had actually gone to the church and he tried to report what had happened to him and he'd been given the runaround. He was being basically kind of stonewalled. So he decided to take uh, matters into his own hands and he found uh, a man called Phil White, who's attorney in Vermont. He'd been a prosecutor. He told Phil that when he was at St. Joseph's in Billington, Vermont, a nun had taken him into it was a kind of little utility room under a staircase and she cut him in the general region with some incredibly sharp object. It was dark. He couldn't see it. And he still had the scars to that day from that one incident in that room. And it was actually his wife who had, you know, after they got married, noticed them and asked what happened. And that was what began Joseph Bargain's sort of process that it made him end up in Phil White's office. That's right. And so began a years-long effort that involved more than 20 separate suits brought by two separate lawyers that, again, this process ran over a period of years. And what's crucial for readers to understand is that many, many of the stories are based in testimony under sworn oath. Many, many, many depositions where lawyers are able to cross-examine these people. And I think that's important for folks to understand that this is not just some, some interview that you conducted in a bar, but rather much of this evidence is given uh, under oath. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that made St. Joseph's Orphanage the right story to tell the whole story of the Orphanages of America because of this incredible body of materials that had been generated in the 1990s. So, for example, just Sally Dale has 19 hours of videotape deposition. You read through literally 
thousands and thousands of pages of documents. Now, one of the things that's happened since we published the story is that a television station in Vermont, I believe it's WCAX, interviewed the current bishop of Burlington, I believe it is, and he did offer an apology for the abuses that happened at the orphanage, but he also dismissed any accusations of murder there as quote-unquote urban myth. What do you think about that? Yeah, I was really surprised by the fact that he'd taken that approach. After there's been so much cover-up revealed, cover-up of sexual abuse by priests across the country, and in this story alone, as you well know, cover-up of events at the orphanage, I just don't think that kind of answer or approach works anymore. I just I don't think there's any credibility to it. And what was really amazing to me too is you know, the story is literally about the ways in which all these stories can be verified. The story was literally about corroboration. The story is literally about the fact that there is an enormous amount of evidence out there that it's not even too late now to back up, to validate, to uh, to verify so many of the stories that the orphans told. And I actually thought it was particularly striking for the reason that we were able to get our hands on a huge number of documents that the diocese is almost certainly in possession of still, and they provide evidence that even priests who took the stand during the orphanage litigation in the 1990s, priests who themselves professed disgust and shock at the accusations, who suggested in, in the tone all the things that they said that what these former residents were saying was, in fact, a myth-like kind of story, are themselves or were themselves actually predators of children. So, so once again, there's just no credibility there. It's interesting because you found that over a 39-year span, there were only three years where the priest in charge of the entire orphanage orphanage complex was not an accused abuser. So for virtually the entire time of those 39 years, the person running the show had been accused of sexual abuse. And I think it's interesting, too, this Pennsylvania grand jury report that just came out. I'm going to quote from it. It said, quote, priests were raping little boys and girls, and the men of God who were responsible for them not only did nothing, they hid it all for decades. And I think what what many readers have expressed is that they want some way to get to the bottom of what happened. And I don't know what that way is forward, and I don't know whether you know what, what the way forward is. But this national reckoning that has happened in other countries has not happened here. That's absolutely right. I, I don't know exactly either, but I do believe that that grand jury is incredibly significant, and I really think it's the beginning of a greater justice because it wasn't just it wasn't just a news story. It really provided us with a larger picture as well. I, I, I can't remember exactly, but it was something, was it not, like 1,000 victims and Correct. 300 priests. I mean, it really shows us the scale of the abuse and the scale of the cover-up, and that this report is history being made. This report is the record-keeping 
of all these stories. And that right, but it's all never... these stories of sexual abuse, and what you have provided is an entirely new front, an entirely new frontier and dimension, which goes far beyond pre-sexual abuse and exposes an entire regime of physical abuse, emotional shaming and humiliation, and at the far edge of that brutality and abuse, allegations of actual murder. And it's that which I think we do need to, to have more investigation of, an inquiry and a reckoning with. The former residents of St. Joseph and the residents of orphanages all across America deserve to be heard in that way. Christine, thank you. Thank you for this story and thank you for this time. Oh, Mark, thank you so much. That was Investigations Editor Mark Schuess and Contributing Editor Christine Keneally. To read Christine Keneally's incredible investigation, text JoJo the word NUN. That's N-U-N. JoJo's number is 929-236-9577, and it's also in the show notes for this episode. Okay, now you're going to hear something super creepy. Hey, it's Charlie. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, the reception here is pretty shitty. Have to get a good signal. This is Robot Charlie. It's the voice that our tech reporter Charlie Warzel made with an app called Liarbird. That's spelled L-Y-R-E bird, not L-I-A-R bird. This will become relevant soon. It's this tech startup that created technology that makes it possible to fake somebody's voice. Liarbird basically created a technology that you can type anything into a text box and it will stitch the words together, create it. Um, and so it can take words that you've never actually said and recreate them based off of the way that you say other words. So the, the way the Liarbird got a digital copy of my voice is I started using the software and reading these short sentence long prompts. And I read about 215 of them in there. So it took, you know, just about an hour or so of really boring, uh, bland sentence reading. And each time, uh, you know, submitting the clips individually. And uh, once I did that, it basically created this this longer profile of my voice and figured out how I would say things and sort of use that to predict rather than uh, have me actually say every word in the English language out loud. Uh, it's like it's taking your words and turns them into Legos and then it can build all kinds of stuff with those Legos, right? Yeah. And, and the more you give it, the better it is, obviously. Um, and I think that one thing to to know about this is that this is still really as impressive as it is rudimentary technology. It, it's, it's kind of just stitching things together. But in the future, it could, you know, pick up on your cadence even more. It could understand what kind of parts of your voice uh, lead you to, you know, have a crack or a break in your voice um, when you might want to stutter or uh, pause. And, and it could, you know, start to inject things like ums and ahs and, and really get uh, good. You did an experiment where you tested how real this voice could sound and you tested it with a very special person. Tell me about that. That's right. Um, so back in April, I trained the, my digital voice to try to sound as much like me as I could in about an hour. And then I decided to test it on the person who knows my voice probably better than anyone else. And that's my mom. <laughs> uh, you know, 
she's been listening to me, you know, rant for 30 years. So I figured if I fool her, then this, you know, would really prove that it's good enough to, to trick a lot of people. Um, so what I did is I, I was going to be meeting my mom for dinner that night. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. How are you? And I decided to type out a whole bunch of preset phrases in Lyrebird and then call her just to like do a quick check and make sure that we were on for dinner that night. Text me when you arrive. Sound good? Oh, great, Charlie. Thank you. I'm I'm losing service right now. Love you. Bye. Love you too. Bye. It worked seamlessly. She she didn't believe even for a second that anything, you know, was amiss. It sounded like, I'm sure on her end, you know, just one of those kind of uh, grainy, poor reception calls. Akin to what we're hearing you on now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, in fact, you know, there's really... Now that you know this, no reason to believe that, you know, you're not listening to a bunch of preset recorded phrases. Oh, no, I'm afraid. (laughs) A couple months ago, Jordan Peele made a video with BuzzFeed where he impersonated President Obama and he said some pretty wild stuff. Ben Carson is in the sunken place. Or how about this? Simply, President Trump is a total and complete dipshit. This isn't just audio. There's video components that can be made, too. And that is pretty freaky. It, it definitely is. I mean, we the, the video stuff, I think, is um, is sort of more awe inspiring in terms of technology that may, we maybe didn't think could have existed before. I, one thing to keep in mind about it, though, is that we've been dealing with things like photos with Photoshop and manipulation for years. And we've managed to get accustomed to the idea that, hey, is that image fake? Did that person really wear this? Or are they really in this situation? So I I think we do get used to this. But what's difficult about right now is that these fakes are coming out, these video fakes, these deep fakes. And they're not only believable, but they're getting exponentially better every day. And we're also experiencing at the same time, you know, the the birth of all of this social media and stuff travels so quick that, you know, things can get out there before people have really had a chance to verify them or knock them down. Or, you know, if you do sort of try to debunk a, a video like that, sometimes it can be too late. It can spread too fast. Right. One major question I have here is why do we need this? Like, why are people making this software I, I, I really don't know why the world needs this. Please explain. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's always the question that I go to, right? The, why are we doing this? Um, and, you know, the, end, the, the reason really is that technology is changing very fast. And, you know, things like neural networks and things like artificial intelligence are getting better and people are applying it to, to every facet of our lives. And so the people at Lyrebird... Um, I, I think they they had this idea that this could be possible, and they wanted to do it in what they're arguing is a very ethical way. What um, they they have <laughs> a an entire page on their website that outlines how they see this. They have made it so that once you record their voice, it is sort of locked and only available to you for your own purposes. No one can you know grab your voice and take it. But I, I think you know what they've done is they've created this interesting technology they want to show it off but they they want to do it in a way that 
raises awareness and shows people that this technology is already out there. Other people could be doing this. And that, I think, is the most important part, this sort of idea of education. My mom was fooled by this, not just because it was a decent copy of my voice, but also because she didn't know something like this existed. How are we supposed to know what is real and what is fake? Can you give us some pointers or some advice? Sure. It's all kind of, at this point, common sense. The first thing is to look at the source of anything that seems a little weird, right? If you see a video where Barack Obama looks like he's talking from the White House and he you know, starts saying weird things, like in the Jordan Peele video, you can sort of look at where that first came from. Did it come from some weird fever swamp message board like 4chan? If so, there's a good chance that's probably something weird. Um, but, you know, if it's coming from very legitimate news sources, maybe there's reason to believe it. That's the first thing. The second thing is to sort of inspect, if it's a video especially, to inspect the video itself. So deepfakes are pretty good, but there's certain characteristics that are a little off still, like the mouth, per se. Um, the mouth often moves in like a really weird sort of non-human way. Right. If it looks kind of uncanny, right? So if it looks sort of like Nicolas Cage, but it also kind of looks like a version of Nicolas Cage you've never seen before, huh. you know, that that's like a, a really big alarm bell. If it's very, very good, you can pause the video and kind of scoot through it frame by frame and oftentimes that'll reveal some really weird stuff like blurry lines in the face um stuff that would never appear on a non-doctored film so there's ways um but in audio you kind of can't there's not a whole lot of ways to check on that are there yeah i mean that's the that's the scariest part about the audio because it has to the, the level of believability is definitely different than with video. Seeing is believing to some extent, and and we're a lot better at training our eyes than I think we are training our ears. What is the worst case scenario versus the best case scenario? Well, there's a whole bunch, and uh, this is where I tend to lose people at like dinner parties or whatever. <laughs> people just walk away from me because I start to sound oh, like crazy, but. The easiest to understand worst case scenario is that somebody impersonates the voice or, you know, creates a realistic video manipulation of someone like the president. He declares war on North Korea and, you know, there's a nuclear war. That's a pretty bad one um, <laughs> for sure. Uh, that's also, you know, pretty unlikely at this point. The technology is not really there. But I think what's what's more scary to me, because it's more plausible, is this idea that over the years, we get more and more examples of this kind of technology. A couple of people get fooled here and there. And then you have things like spam emails or spam phone calls that become way more believable. And that this idea that reality slowly starts to become difficult to distinguish. And in being difficult, people just slowly kind of peel away a little. And so this researcher that I that I met with who started me on this whole quest, uh, he described it, uh, he, the term as something called reality apathy. And what that means is when you're sort of faced with this really exhausting task of differentiating every single thing and having to decide whether it's real, you just start to stop engaging as much. You know, if your inbox is all really believable spam, you start to check it less. And I think that that's what's kind of scary. If we get to a point where we're all just worn down by the fact that nothing is what it seems. 
Charlie Warzel or maybe a robot that is his voice. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. Okay, don't do that. It's robot hey, John, voice. It's Charlie. Uh, so basically, this is the dystopian future. In the near future, somebody is going to troll me with this and perhaps ruin my life. I cannot wait. Forward into terror. Tell Marpena hi for me. That was Charlie Warzel, his creepy voice twin, and me. To read Charlie's story of voice punking his mom, text Jojo the word deepfake. That's deep like the ocean and fake like Charlie's voice twin. Also, you should definitely check out BuzzFeed News' new show on Netflix called Follow This. In episode 7, Charlie goes a lot more in-depth into this whole deepfake story, and there's creepy video and you don't want to miss it. Follow This. It's on Netflix now. And welcome to What in the World. This is the point of the show where our world news editor, Miriam Elder, explains all the big international news that's happened this week. Hi, Miriam. Hey, Julia. So today we're playing another round of 15-second foreign policy, where I play a clip related to something that happened in the world this week, and you tell us what it means and what is going on. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Okay, here we go. This has to do, they used to call it NAFTA, we're going to call it the United States, Mexico, trade agreement. Uh, we'll get rid of the name NAFTA. has a bad connotation because the United States was hurt very badly by NAFTA. What is Donald Trump talking <laughs> about, Miriam? That was probably the most normal part of a very bizarre phone call <laughs> that he had, uh, that President Trump had with the Mexican president this week, announcing a new trade deal. He had him on speakerphone, but it took forever to get started. He was like, Enrique, hello, do we have Enrique on the phone? And he wasn't on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Presidents, they're just like us. They have technical difficulties. It was bizarre all around. But the whole point is that Trump campaigned on destroying NAFTA, portraying it as something that was bad for the American worker. Uh, And so instead, he's kind of gone to the side to try to forge this deal with Mexico in a bid to bring Canada in and basically develop some sort of a new NAFTA that he will, however, never call NAFTA. And the point of it is that it's excluding Canada, right? Like, NAFTA was about Canada, Mexico, and the United States. And this one is all about his best friend, the Mexican president. (laughs) It's all about Mexico and the United States, no Canada. It is, but part of the point is to pressure Canada to come to the table and make some uh, concessions that the U.S. has wanted. And the Canadian foreign minister has been in in the U.S. this week. So they're expecting to see progress there. Okay. Number two, here we go. As you know, we took the step to suspend several of the largest exercises as a good-faith measure Uh, coming out of the Singapore summit. Uh, We have no plans at this time to suspend any more exercises. What is this guy talking about, Miriam? Well, this guy is Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, and you might not recognize his voice because he doesn't actually talk to the press all that much. But what he was saying in this is that Uh, war games or military exercises that have have been a regular occurrence between South Korea and America will go on as planned. They were canceled uh, a few months ago. Right. 
when the U.S. and North Korea were making friendships, making friendships, according to Donald Trump. Right. Exactly. Trump was going around saying North Korea is agreed to completely denuclearize. Everything is amazing. Mission accomplished. <laughs> uh, surprise, surprise. That's not the case. And so this week, Trump canceled a visit by his secretary of state and has just made it clear that um, he's finally realized that things maybe aren't going as swimmingly as he thought. And so part of that is restarting the uh, military exercises. War games is such a weird phrase. It is. We should call them military exercises because, you know, war is never a game. Agreed. Excellent point, Miriam. That's why you're here. (laughs) Okay. Number three. The mission has concluded that criminal investigation and prosecution is warranted, focusing on the top Tatmadaw generals in relation to the three categories of crimes under international law. Genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. That was Christopher Dominic Sidoti, who's a member of the UN fact-finding mission that just issued a report on what they saw as they investigated the ethnic cleansing in Myanmar of Rohingya people. They were accusing uh, the top military brass in the country of orchestrating this genocide that has forced 700,000 people to flee. There's been mass rape. There's been murder. And the UN doesn't throw around words like genocide easily. And they also aren't really forceful very often, as we've seen in Syria and other places. So this was a really, really huge move. And Facebook is a part of this entire conversation, right? They are. The U.N. even called out Facebook for being complicit in spreading this hate, which is a first for for the U.N. And uh, in the wake of that and in the wake of reporting by uh, one of our reporters into the role that Facebook was playing, allowing these generals like these generals were posting on Facebook, calling Rohingya people dogs. Wow. Um, And even worse. Uh, So Facebook then took the step to ban um, to ban more than a dozen generals and and other people from from using the platform, which is also like a new step on the path of Facebook finally trying to regulate what its platform is used for. Hate speech. Hate speech, basically. 700,000 people have been forced to flee. What happens next, Miriam? Well, so these people, many of them are living in a part of Bangladesh called Cox's Bazaar in in really horrific conditions. But what happens now is the UN is looking to stop this and for some sort of accountability. So they've recommended the head of the armed forces to be referred to the International Criminal Court. So in theory, this could unfold in a way that we saw accountability like with Rwanda or uh, in Serbia. So the international process, in theory, could start. But what happens to the people on the ground is a, is a much more difficult question. Thank you so much, Miriam. Thank you. That was Miriam Elder, whose ability to connect with different time zones is absolutely unparalleled and defies the time-space continuum. And that's our show for the week. Thank you so much for listening. A little business, we're going to take Wednesday off, but we're going to drop something really lovely in your feeds just to make sure you don't miss us too much. If you like what you heard, you know the drill. Rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, just like Christine Jack did. Christine Jack wrote, When I listen to the news, I feel like I'm getting exactly what I need. It's real, and I love how they have games on what is fake or not. Thanks for making my day now twice a week. Christine Jack, please know we make this show for you. And don't forget, if you text JoJo the word whomst, you can get a list of everybody in this week's episode and their Twitter handles. This show was produced by the Pod Squad. That's Megan Detry, Alex Lachlan, Camilla Salazar, Ahmed Ali Akbar, and me, Julia Furlan. Our boss is Cindy Van Egas Gessewell, and our music is by Chad Crouch. You can follow us on Twitter at BuzzFeed Audio, and you can email us at podsquad at buzzfeed.com. 
And special thank you to Jojo, who, fun fact, is an inferior robot to me, Robot Charlie. <laughs> okay, we'll be back September 8th with a new episode for you. So stay tuned. Here we go, 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 do, 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 do,